happy Friday, everybody. It's the Information's 411, your weekly podcast from the reporting team at The Information, giving you all the best stories we wrote during the week and what went on behind the scenes as we put them together. My name is Tom Dotan. I'm a reporter at The Information, uh, and I get to talk about a story that I wrote this week, too. Uh, I, I am chatting with Jessica Tunkel, my counterpart on the media beat, to talk about Roku, uh, not a company that we write about all that often, but I always enjoy uh, the chances to, to dig into their business because it's fascinating. Uh, you may think of them just as the stick that you plug into your TV to get to watch your your, your Netflix and your Amazons and what have you. Uh, but there's a lot of negotiation that goes on behind the scenes between Roku and uh, the media companies. And those negotiations have gotten uh, increasingly, let's call it tense, uh, as Roku has begun trying to get a little bit more out of these partners uh, in order to build up their own business. And the media companies themselves are trying to figure out exactly how much leverage Roku has in order to make the demands that they're making. Uh, so that's my conversation with Tunkel. And then I'm also talking to Corey Weinberg about SoftBank. Uh, I feel like we have regular updates on SoftBank and all that's gone on with their vision fund. Uh, but this conversation, we, we dove into all the problems that it's having. Uh, Corey and Amir wrote a great story last week about uh, why there's internal turmoil at SoftBank. And then uh, it also gives us a chance to look at some of their current investments and how they're faring post uh, the WeWork debacle. All right, those are my conversations this week. Very excited to get to them. So let's get right to my conversation with uh, Jessica. All right, Tunkel, not a company that you and I write that much about, but secretly hugely important in the streaming world is Roku. And this story that we were working on and, and, and published earlier this week looks at, you know, a, to me, sort of surprising elements of the business, which is their relationship with media companies and they're trying to kind of flex their muscles, as our, as our graphic uh, illustrated, uh, in, in terms of trying to get better terms with the media companies. I mean, maybe just starting off here, like, generally, how do you think media companies view Roku? Like, what is their, you know, what is their, how do they view their relationship with this kind of funky company? You know, my impression just from talking to people about the story, I think everyone was kind of caught off guard about how aggressive Roku has become in its distribution negotiations. Um, because I don't think they saw them. They, I don't think the entertainment companies have viewed Roku or a negotiation with Roku at the same level as like negotiating with a charter or a Comcast. Right. Um, right. And so I think that they were really caught off guard when Roku, which, I mean, as we point out in the story, it's easy, it's easy if you can't access an app through Roku, there are many other ways to see that content. Yeah, um, It's not that hard to get another device, right, uh, to watch something on your TV. So I think everyone was just really caught off guard because they, they from the entertainment company's perspective, they don't have that much say. Right, right. So I guess we should probably give more context in the story here. So so what we wrote about was the talks that Roku has had with media companies uh, renewing their agreements to carry their apps on Roku devices. So basically, if you want to watch, uh, you know, an NBC app, a Fox app, a think of any major network uh, that has their app on Roku, you need essentially a deal to, uh, to, to have Roku carry that app. And as these deals have come up for renewal, Roku has asked for better and better terms. 
um, for better and better terms for Roku, uh, which has, as we sort of reported out, increasingly centered on advertising, right? They want more access to Roku's inventory. Sorry, they, Roku wants more access to a media company's inventory so that they can build up their ads business. Um, from like the media company's perspective, I mean, why is that such a problem for them? Well, I think that it's, I think they understand that they're going to have to share some of the ad inventory, but I think it's almost the tactics that they've taken, uh, not just what the ask is. Um, I mean, as our story indicated, uh, we spoke to entertain an entertainment company who, and they had this happen to them twice, Roku signed a deal with them, a one-year deal, and within a couple weeks of that deal being signed, Roku came back with a notice of termination of that deal to try to renegotiate everything. And I heard similar stories from other entertainment companies. Like, these are pretty aggressive tactics. Um, and I think also in the Fox situation, there was, you know, where Roku dropped Fox's apps right before the Super Bowl. You know, the Super Bowl is the biggest live television event of the year. Right. And I think a lot of people were absolutely shocked to yeah. see that happen. Yeah, I should make a, a quick point of clarification. They threatened to. They never actually dropped the apps. They were, they managed to renew the deal before the apps ever fully disappeared from the platform. But it was, yeah, okay. you know, it was aggressive and, and they sent emails out to all of their all of their customers and it was like a real replay uh, to the uh, to what goes on in the cable world, which you've reported on for for a couple of years and know really well about, which is, you know, one day you'll be a happy charter customer and then the next day you'll get a note saying CBS hates you uh, they don't uh, you're not gonna get CBS anymore because they're a bunch of jerks go go complain to CBS uh, but there was kind of a weird like a bizarro aspect of this like dispute right because Roku was also saying to its customers hey yeah you you know Fox is being a jerk but if you want to watch it somewhere else you can go watch it. Go get another. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, you right. Can do a, there are ways to do oh, it. Long trial, right? With Fubo or YouTube or whoever. Yeah, right. yeah, right. And so that gets to the other kind of funny aspect of the story, which is Roku was trying out these hardball uh, cable carrier-like tactics, but they don't really have the leverage because they they don't, unlike a charter or or any of these ones, they don't have a monopoly. There are so many other ways to get these channels, and so you kind of question how effective these things are going to be, right? Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I had a, a good conversation with someone who was saying they felt like it wasn't so much that Roku was trying to be, like, a really tough negotiator. I mean, as much as they're, they're testing the waters, right. right? Like, these ad-supported apps are, like, all of a sudden becoming this huge thing, right? You have Peacock. NBC is going to be launching its Peacock service. You have Viacom buying Pluto. And you have these other apps that are out there. So, and as more people cancel their cable subscriptions, more of this content is going to go to these kinds of apps. So there's this question of Roku saying, how much can I get away with? Right. And, you know, we've written about this, but, you know, the, the first company to be aggressive like this was Amazon, right? With its Amazon channels. Mm -hmm. um, and they have and a huge amount of leverage. I would actually argue that with the channels thing, Amazon is probably a better position because there are lots of apps that their entire subscriber base comes from people or a huge amount of it comes from people who uh, are Amazon Prime customers and then use like Amazon to add on like an HBO package or something like that. So, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we saw that with the HBO's apps, how much their usage came up just from being on Amazon. 
Um, yeah, no, it's definitely a different thing, but I do think that Roku kind of saw that and was like, I wonder, when you know, we can do that. So, yeah. and as we know, like Roku has gotten into new businesses, like they have the Roku channel, like they have grown, they're not just a distributor of apps anymore. They're doing, you know, more of their own stuff. And so they feel like they have more leverage. Right, right. And they also have a business need to do it, right? Like their business is predominantly coming from selling ads or like that segment of, of their income or revenue. So they need to test the, the, you know, Raptors testing the fences or whatever to, to, to figure out how much more can we make out of this because we have shareholders to, you know, to, to satisfy. We have a, a bottom line we need to hit. And uh, this is one way to do it is to continue to try to get a better and better deal. Um, so one thing that I thought was kind of interesting in our story was like seeing the reaction from media companies. Because in one sense, you know, I think some of the people we talked to were like, Eh, Roku, the, the audience is all that sm- is not that big overall. There's lots of different players out there, but they did all renew the deals. I mean, none of these guys wanted to be dropped from Roku or like really would have been cool about it in the end, right? I mean, there is there is some leverage. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, as I mean, as someone noted in our story, you know, it's if you're a newer app, it's hard to get eyeballs if you're not on Roku. I mean, it's it's possible. But They're the market hard. leader. They have like, you know, 40% or so. Yeah. Of that so, audience. you know, and uh, again, like these apps are becoming increasingly important for these companies because, you know, people keep cutting the cord. Yeah. And so I guess the next steps will be interesting for us to watch is how do, how do these types of negotiations proceed? And, you know, one of the things that didn't make it into the story where I was talking to someone at, I don't want to name the name of the company, but, um, you know, they sort of had thought like, oh, you know, if we ever got to a point where Roku decided to go nuclear and completely drop our app, um, maybe we should just send Fire Sticks or Apple TVs out to people. And yeah, that's a, you know, that's a, a hit economically to, to pay 20 bucks or something to send all those things out. But that might be the game that we might, that we'll have to play in order to ensure that they don't have us under their thumb. I mean, do you, yeah. do, you do you think stuff like that's going to become more commonplace down the line? Yeah, I definitely do. I definitely do. I mean, I don't know who's going to be like either that or like Roku is going to like just give everyone, send everyone. I mean, the converse of that is Roku sends everyone a link who they for that app to like the sling seven day trial. Right. (laughs) Like I think both sides can play that game. But I I do think you're going to definitely see more of these kinds of disputes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, That's why this is the most fun beat to be writing about. all right, Tunkel, uh, let's, uh, let's have you back on here soon to talk more about Roku. Sounds good. So, Corey, SoftBank, a lot in the news recently, and we've had a pair of stories in the last two weeks, actually, talking about what is going on there. Uh, let's start off with just the last week's story that you co-bylined with Amir, because that came a bit off the news that a SoftBank partner was leaving and gave you guys an opportunity to get inside the fund right now in what sounds to be a fairly, uh, I don't know, dysfunctional is the right word, but tense and maybe chaotic situation. Th- those three words are okay to use to describe the world's largest tech, tech fund right now. Yeah. Um, you know, just to, obviously SoftBank has been sort of one of the, dominant stories of private tech in the last three years when they hundred billion dollar fund exactly and just a hundred billion dollar fund reshaping the landscape of tech by just funneling as much money as possible to various companies that they choose and having this ripple effect across venture capital where 
you know, the Sequoias, the Andreessen's of the world are, are also raising larger right. growth funds in order to just keep up. And, and so basically where we're at now, uh, you know, is, is essentially SoftBank burned through the first vision fund um, in less than three years, essentially. They are no longer making new investments out of that $100 million fund. Billion, $100 yeah. billion dollar fund, yeah. thank you. Uh, and they've set aside uh, about $15 billion, 15 to $20 billion for uh, follow-on investments. And so companies that they already invested in from Oyo to Cruise uh, to ByteDance, you know, can some of the biggest names in tech, you know, can take advantage of that. What we're really seeing now is sort of the aftershocks of WeWork's failure. Right, which is the maybe not as much as Uber, I can't remember now, but easily it's, about, it's nearly it's yeah okay so so their, their headline investment i mean the one that really uh, uh exemplified masa's strategy and his belief in you know game-changing tech right. companies right so what we uncovered last week was essentially the internal dynamics of the vision fund uh and how they've led to sort of poor outcomes for a lot of these companies and I think if you want to understand sort of why there has been, you know, a fair number of, if not failures, then at least uh, souring bets from the Vision Fund, you have to understand how it was how it was created and how decisions get made get get made. Um, and what Amir and I kind of found after some reporting was you have a fairly unique environment at the Vision Fund where you have investing partners who are incentivized to essentially just grow the number of deals that they're bringing to Masayoshi Sun, SoftBank CEO. Um, they're not necessarily incentivized to really think about sort of the long-term, um, the long-term fortunes of the fund. Um, so you've had this environment where partners are suspecting each other of handing uh, one company that they've invested in, you know, another partner kind of taking that data and giving it to a, a competitor that the other partner also wants to invest in. Yeah. Um, so Just, it's really been this. this it's it's bitter. There, there's culture. there's infighting. And all of it to me comes down to the central. It's funny to think of it this way, but challenge of it's not actually that easy to spend $100 billion in a Brewster's billions kind of way. Like it, you need to optimize your system in order to get that to happen and that's just difficult and and just plagued i think it's not that's right and 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 we should be clear i mean right now the the on paper the SoftBank just reported their earnings and they have to disclose a lot more than what a typical vc firm would i mean when we've gotten our hands on on um sort of the fun track record of the Andreessen's of the world um, you know, like I think it needs to be couched with, with kind of understanding, you know, these are 10 year funds and, and it's still early for, for a lot of these bets. But right now on paper, you know, about a third of the kind of companies in the vision fund that are privately held have been marked down within the last nine months. Yeah. You know, the South bank is saying that their fair value is less than where South bank invested. Um, and that's on top of the on paper losses that we've seen from WeWork. Um, the thing that's really been holding 
division fund up and why it may be a success is uh, in some ways, like late stage private tech investing can still be a very good business. And so you've seen some bets like NVIDIA and Flipkart um, and even Uber now is in the black um, from where SoftBank invested. They're still at least worse Uber stock prices right now and where Slack stock prices right now, SoftBank would make money if they sold those shares. Um, so uh, we're not trying to say that things are hopeless, but certainly I think the way that the Vision Fund was developed, where you did have some of these misaligned incentives, you had a team built of mostly former bankers rather than venture investors. Um, and I think we're seeing at least sort of the challenges around that. Yeah, and in closing on this kind of broader element of the whole story, I mean, do we have a clear sense yet of whether the whole thesis behind SoftBank, which is like money can be its own weather system. And if we deploy it with enough velocity, we can rearrange the climate, you know, yeah. climatological map of, of, of tech in order in our favor. That's yeah. I think that that's proven to be, uh, you know, just a, a bad assumption on SoftBank's part. I think when you would, ha when I would have and other reporters would have some early, conversations back in 2018 when the fund was really just getting going you know the idea was okay let's take it from from SoftBank they would kind of voice this this line of thinking you know if we can just take a company and and they're going well you know with 50 salespeople, uh what if they had 500 right wouldn't that just supercharge the growth and and they've just been time and time again where that actually masks the core business challenges or, or exacerbates them, or right? exacerbates, yeah. you know, like, yeah. and I think even Masayoshi son at SoftBank earnings at a press conference early this week, you know, he still has not sort of internalized. I think that message, or at least he isn't publicly saying it. I think he had a quote, you know, so, you know, essentially saying that companies still need war chests mm -hmm. um, companies, you know, and, and for sure companies need money to survive. But, um, and now they've sort of shifted their focus, at least sort of publicly towards, you know, show helping their company show a path towards profitability or unit economics. But it almost feels like they still haven't internalized sort of the, the core lesson, which is money doesn't solve every sort of business challenge. And yeah, at some points, if you give an entrepreneur this much money, then, um, you know, it's going to be. Yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, just to really just lay heavily on, on the metaphors you've been throwing out casually here, it's like you, you attach like a rocket engine to something that's on a potentially rickety track. And if you do that, I mean, obviously you're increasing the speed of the vehicle, but that thing could just fly the fuck off. Yeah. And I think the, the, I think the key question to be watching over the next year. So I think over the past six months, we've seen maybe a half dozen very high profile, at least in the Valley, flameouts. Yeah. You know, companies that are... Uh, one recently, by the way, Brandless. Brandless uh, was the first company to actually close. Like they shut down after taking about $100 million from SoftBank. Um, and last year, uh, our, our Zoe Bernard wrote a story about kind of that exact issue, how SoftBank coming in really destabilized that company. Exactly. And you've seen significant write-downs with the WAG investment, with the WeWork investment, and you've had some, some situations at companies called Fair, which is a car leasing company, and Zoom, which was a robot pizza maker. Uh, you know, those companies essentially laying off nearly half the staff or pivoting the business pretty strongly. Right. So those are the really troubled cases. I think we see maybe another 10 to 12 cases um, out of this 90 portfolio, 90 company portfolio, where it's just, it's already pretty clear that 
things, things are, are going the wrong. Looking yeah. good. Yeah. I think just the question for the next year is just how many more cases are going to emerge where taking SoftBank money became a real inhibitor and actually was damaging. And, right. and I don't I don't think we're it's quite clear yet. I think it's right now trendy in the valley to say that um uh you know they just totally screwed with some of the past of these companies. I think we're going to need to see some more reporting. To, to yeah, and you know, it's just in, in. I don't want to say in fairness to them, but there's always a broader story for each individual case, and it might be a convenient uh, yeah. explanation for some companies to be that were already troubled, saying, "Oh, that SoftBank money really threw right. us off our game." When really, so many of these companies just by law of averages fail. Right. Um, yeah, for it, sure. And I think we should also be conscious of the. And well, I was I called up a vision fund portfolio company executive today kind of just talking about some of my reporting and some of these guys are, are quite defensive of the vision fund or at least will point out that that look like you know the they're getting an undue amount of attention compared to other funds which have flame outs because they were the most loud yeah stopping was the loudest of most and the most extreme about we're gonna we're gonna be we, we're the kingmaker we are going to be the biggest fund by far and we're gonna we're gonna tell you about it and they also have to be the most transparent because they report to a public company so that certainly drives you know like I think some of our that's kind of the backdrop of some of the reporting but I do think uh, they just haven't helped themselves I think between the internal culture and some of their bets um, it's just really easy to kind of at least as we stand right now, three years into the fund, you know, to say that this is experiment is not looking good. Yeah. And the one, you know, last thing will be interesting to watch is how easily they'll be able to continue to raise new funds. I know it's been difficult, incredibly difficult for them uh, yeah. with the most recent fund. That's that's the other thing to watch going forward is that was the other news that really was confirmed this week by SoftBank, which said that, <clears throat> you know, they aren't going. They had come out last July and said, you know. Guys, Vision Fund Two is coming. It's gonna. You thought this Vision Fund One was great, a hundred billion dollars. This is gonna be a hundred and eight billion dollars. Sure. Uh, I don't know how they got to the the extra eight, but you know they announced a bunch of MOU commitments. Uh, you know from Apple and Microsoft, um, but the names that were missing were the largest outside investors from the first Vision Fund, which were the uh, essentially the the money behind the kingdoms of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab. Yeah, Emirates. and it's not like those guys are short on cash. They're not short on cash, but they're I think looking at the state of play at the first vision fund and saying we don't know if this is the best place yeah. to like take our oil money and <laughs> i was about to say let's let's redirect that money towards you know building jurassic park in the middle east or right. whatever it is they're well they're on. doing that too but um you know that that seems like it's off track uh, well it's definitely off track and that's not to say that they can't close those funds in, in the future or at least if they show progress you know it's not like there's not a lot of late stage private tech money sloshing around in the world but this was like the the broader context here is like we are in a bull market. This should be a great time to be investing in private like these like unicorns and and yeah. and their SoftBank is kind of stepping over themselves. So, yeah, um, yeah, not the last we've heard in this story. So uh, stay stay tuned. As yeah, we say. yes. All right, Corey, thanks for joining. Thanks.